here we are with chapter eight. Yeah, that will touch all of our sensitive points completely. <laughs> and uh, if we fight it, we're going to be miserable. And if we let it come in, it will be uh, a bit painful, but will result in some happiness at the end. Like, it's like taking medicine, you know. If you don't take the medicine, you stay sick. If you take the medicine, it tastes terrible sometimes. Yeah, but you get better. So let's cultivate our motivation in learning the Dharma. Our mind has to become very flexible, and the practice makes the mind flexible. And we learn to look at one object from different viewpoints and even come to different conclusions about it that are both correct in their own context. So, for example, in one meditation, we contemplate the foulness of the body, how it's filled with disgusting things and produces disgusting things. And we come to the conclusion that there is is nothing at all to be attached to in this body, nothing too beautiful to cling to. And then... In another meditation, when we're contemplating our precious human life that exists based on this body, we learn to appreciate the body, our life, and are instructed to care for our body and care for our health and not deprecate them. So that seems to be quite different than the conclusion we reach when thinking of the foulness of the body. But both ways of seeing the body are accurate in their own context. And both conclusions regarding the body help us along the path.
And so it is, too, with our attitude towards other living beings. In one context, seeing them as kind. In another context, seeing them as distracting us. So now in the context of generating bodhicitta as our motivation, we focus on their kindness. We don't lose track of their ability to distract us, but that's not the focus right now. So based on remembering their kindness, then we want to repay it. And we see the best way to repay it is by guiding them on the path. And in order to do that, we must actualize the path ourselves. And so we generate the bodhicitta, the aspiration to do just that. So make that the motivation for our sharing the Dharma today. Another example of being able to see the same thing from from different angles uh, is going to come up in the teachings today. Yeah, and it comes up in in a lot of different contexts. Uh, for example, in when we think of ourselves as one in. Uh, almost 8 billion uh, human beings on this planet, let alone countless living beings in the universe, uh, we are actually quite insignificant and unimportant. And it's quite, it's good for us to remember that, you know, and not, it helps us not focus on our own happiness, our own suffering so much because we realize, hey, there's a whole universe full of sentient beings having this experience all around us. In another context, we look at ourselves as one individual, and we become quite important in the sense that our actions influence others, and what we do can cause a lot of joy or a lot of pain. And so, you know, we need to focus on ourselves and uh, have that uh, introspective awareness to be aware of, of what we're thinking, saying, and doing. Okay? 
So this thing of, you know, a certain way of being able to look at things from many different perspectives. Uh, Another one is uh, we live in a community, yeah? So sometimes we have to take the welfare of the whole community, you know, as the thing that we focus on. And sometimes we have to take the welfare of one individual in the community as what we focus on. And sometimes those two may seem to go in opposite directions. What's good for that individual doesn't work for the community, or what's good for the community doesn't work for the individual. Okay? So, you know, to to learn to see these things from different perspectives and see that they aren't necessarily contradictory if we keep each thing within its own context. Yeah, if we take things out of their context, then we get very, very confused. This is making some sense, or are you all confused now? Okay, so what the section that we're going into now with Shanti Deva is he's talking about living beings. Yeah, now uh, earlier the focus was really on the kindness of sentient beings and how we are interrelated with them and our welfare depends on them and. We want to repay their kindness and, you know, we can't think of ourselves alone and just, you know, we focus on how dependent we are on sentient beings. Now, in the context of the, the chapter on meditation, which is beginning with the how to develop concentration, we're looking at uh, sentient beings in a very different light. Yeah. And uh, so you have to keep the two contexts different because now we're going to be talking about sentient beings in their childish aspect. Yeah. Geshe Zopa used the term immature. He was so polite. It's really childish. You know, I, 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 I think it works to to look at my own mind and say it's childish sometimes and to see other people as childish. And at the same time, you can respect them as living beings. Okay? So not confusing the context, but seeing that each way of looking that, at sentient beings uh, nourishes a different perspective in our own heart and mind. Okay, so we've been talking about so far, yeah. I'll just read a few of the um, the verses that we've covered all, already, and then we'll actually start with verse 8 already uh, today. Okay, because of uh, the obsession with one transient being has that, because of the obsession one transient being has for other transient beings, they will not see their beloved ones again for many thousands of lives. Okay? So when you're close and attached to some beings, 
You're a transient being. They're a transient being. You want to hold on to each other in the relationship so that nothing changes. That is a doomed project. Okay? Not seeing them. Okay, so we're talking about the people we really love and care for. Not seeing them, I I am unhappy. And my mind just dreams and dreams of being with them and, you know, Christmas together and walking on the beach holding hands together and going through the joys of suffering and the joys of samsara and the suffering, reinforcing each other all through our lives. You know, this romantic idea of, you know, we are true soulmates supporting each other in everything. Okay, so not seeing them, I am unhappy and my mind cannot be settled in equipoise. But even if I see them, there is still no satisfaction. And as before, I am tormented by craving. Okay, so when I'm not with them, I'm miserable. When I'm... (laughs) When I'm, when I am with them, I'm miserable. Then we have to separate again. I'm miserable again. Then we come together and they're not what I want them to be. And I'm unhappy again. Okay. Our yo-yo nature. (laughs) Okay. Through being attached to living beings, I am completely obscured from the perfect reality. My disillusionment with cyclic existence perishes, and in the end, I am tortured by sorrow. Okay? Through being attached, these sentient beings are so kind to me. I've been meditating on on the kindness of sentient beings, and especially my family, especially my friends. They are so kind to me. Okay? And I can't separate wanting to repay their kindness from being attached to them. And I can't separate actual love from attachment in my own mind. And so my mind is completely obscured by craving for them and wanting to be with them. And all my dreams, you know, that that we've gotten from beginning with fairy tales going through uh, teenage magazines into adulthood and Hollywood and even the ads they show for growing old together in in your retirement home and, and you look so happy and healthy in, you know with in your retirement home and yeah still so much in love after what is it 70 years of marriage. Um, okay, so our our mind, I mean, yeah, I think we are inculcated with these very unrealistic uh, views of relationships with others, and we buy into them, and we go along with them, and we extrapolate on them, and, you know, they can take up a whole meditation session Sometimes even a whole retreat. Yeah, every session you sit down. Oh, if only, oh, I love them so much. 
yes, this is what it means to be in love with sentient beings and want their happiness. And your whole meditation is like that. And then you remember something they did, and it's like, that idiot! How can they treat me like that? And then... Oh, I'm here. (laughs) I thought I was with them, living my dream and then and getting mad at them, living my dream again. And actually, I've been here in this room the entire time, but my mind has been lost in conceptualization. Okay. So we're completely obscured from the perfect reality. We are in la-la land, okay? My disillusionment with cyclic existence is out of the window, and I am totally in love with samsara at that moment, and I'm sure I can find the way to tweak it so that my samsara is always good. Yeah? Yeah? And that's when we develop these fantasies about enduring uh, suffering together, in, enduring impermanence together, and how it brings us closer, and we continue to love each other. Yeah, I mean, it's all la-la land, isn't it? Yeah. And sometimes when people point this out to us, we are really disappointed. Yeah? Because we want to be special to other people. Yeah? And when we're special to our friends or special to our family, then we feel we exist. Yeah? And we want to be special. And then we hear about the disadvantages of attachment when we listen to Buddhist teachings, and then we say, oh no, I'm not special to anybody else after all. Oh no. And then part of our mind says, but I want to be special. Yeah, samsara has some good qualities. Why can't I be special to other people? Why can't they be special to me? What's wrong with that? Yeah? And we get terribly confused. I can see some of you know what I'm talking about. Yeah? So, yeah. In the first year at the Abbey that uh, we started having uh, winter retreats with the, the first winter, the first full winter we were here. And I think there were seven people on the retreat, eight people. And it re- we would have discussions during the retreat. And this thing about wanting to be special to other people came out as a really strong point, you know, and how, yeah, an attachment to being special, to being known, to being appreciated, yeah, that that was one strong point. I'm getting off a little bit on a tangent, but it's a, it's a good one. 
Um, the other point that came out during retreat was uh, non-negotiables. Yeah, you were there. So that term uh, came uh, from one of the inmates I was writing to, who was uh, he was in for he had a twenty-year sentence for drugs, which is a totally other story. A, a really well, I'll tell you that story. It's a good story, a uh, little bit more off track, but it, it's related. Um, so yeah, so he was a big drug dealer in Southern California and apparently quite wealthy. He had a number of cars. People thought he was great. He had his own circle of friends that he sold dope to. He used a little bit, but mostly he sold. Yeah. And, uh, and profited great, greatly from it. And, you know, he was somebody. And, and, you know, he was getting older. So he thought, you know, I really should retire from this business. You know, at, I think he was maybe 25, 30. Uh, but he's, uh, the opportunity came to do one more big deal. And he thought, I'm going to do this one more big deal, and then I'll have even more money. I'll leave the country and go somewhere else and live happily ever after. So he did this big deal, and he got busted for it, totally busted, you know. And his friends, all those people who thought he was great, uh, you know, he had to... Dele- you know, give some of, put some of his money in their accounts so that the government didn't take it and so on. All those friends kept the money. They abandoned the friendship. They didn't help him at all. And he was given a 20 year sentence, uh, when he was young, you know, and he just thought, I mean, 20 years when you're young, it's like the, you see it as the whole rest of your life. Anyway, he was nearing the end of his sentence, and uh, we've been communicating quite a lot. He was, he gained a lot of wisdom through contemplating his life. Um, but he was talking about when he gets out, you know, there are certain things that he sees now that he wants to give up, and he, you know, dealing with his attachment and so on. But then there were some things that were not negotiable. Yeah. That he definitely wanted in his life. I think skiing was one of them, wasn't it? Yeah. Something like that. So he was willing to renounce all these other things except the non-negotiables. Because somehow, in samsara, if he could do these things and have these things, then he could be happy. So after he was released, I saw him a few times. And I brought him to... uh, His Holiness was teaching in Pasadena. And uh, I got him to come to... So he made some connection with His Holiness. And then we lost touch after a while. Um, okay. So, you know, we keep thinking, I have 
I'll renounce everything except my non-negotiables. I really need them. Yeah, I want them. And people are a very strong element of our non-negotiables. Yeah, how we relate with people. With some people, it's more on the possession side. That's what they crave for, you know. But with many people, it's, you know, status, praise, approval, reputation, appreciation, all sorts of things that have to do with other people. And hearing nice, ego-pleasing words about ourselves from them. Okay. So, verse (laughs) 8. This is where we're starting. By thinking only of them, You get the story, okay? This life will pass without any meaning. We have a precious human life, and it goes by day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute. Our mind is in la-la land, and our life goes by with no meaning, okay? But we may say, but my ma, I do have meaning. You know, my life does have meaning. I help these people. You know, I go to work and I give them my things and I, I go out and, uh, you know, and have fun with them and go dancing and I do provide them with it, with happiness and, and help take care of their problems and things like that. But what's the motivation behind all that? Is it done out of caring for sending beings? Or is it done out of attachment to them? Okay. So this life will pass without any meaning. And then when death comes, no. We've spent our whole life surrounded by people being somebody in our group of friends and relatives, being special. And when we die, we're alone. You might say, but I'm going to die surrounded by my friends and family, and they're all going to be holding my hand, stroking my shoulder, looking at me, saying, I love you so much. Please don't die. We can't live without you. Live forever. And, you know, again, we're romanticizing our death. You know, this incredible scene of death. So that even all the people at the hospital are so impressed with how many people love us and care for us. We have more visitors when we're in ICU than anybody else. Yeah. But we're still alone when we die, because we die alone. Nobody else comes with us. Even you die at the same time as somebody else, you're still alone in your own karma-created bubble, experiencing the results of your own karma. Okay. Furthermore, impermanent friends and relatives will even destroy the dharma 
which the Dharma, which leads to permanent liberation. So even these people that we love so much, that we think are fantastic, yeah, if they get jealous of the Dharma and think that we are spending more time with the Dharma than with them, yeah, they get very upset and may even destroy the Dharma, you know in which case they create a lot of negative karma. Yeah. We, of course, have the fantasy that we're going to convert all of them to Buddhists and we're going to save our friends and family and they're all going to become Buddhists and we're going to live happily ever after. And they have the fantasy that they're going to convert us back to the out-of-control person that we used to be, and then we'll live happily ever after. Yeah. (laughs) Verse 9, If I behave in the same way as the childish, I shall certainly proceed to lower realms. And if I am led there by those unequal to the Aryas, what is the use of my entrusting myself to the childish. Okay, so if I behave in the same way as the childish, okay, think of your, well, you know, whoever you used to hang out with, either family members or friends, yeah, and think of what you used to do with them and how you used to think. Oh, everybody's looking down now. (laughs) Yeah? What did you do before you met the Dharma with your friends and family? Huh? Nothing good. (laughs) Yeah? Yeah, we got involved in a lot of stuff. And we wasted a lot of time. And we look at, if we look at the ten uh, non-virtues, yeah, maybe some of you are like me and have done all ten. Yeah, maybe some of you are better and you've only done eight or nine. <laughs> but look at the amount of negative karma we've created. Um, by just doing what ordinary people do, what people in society think is normal, what they see as happiness, and how our friends want us to have a good life. And so they invite us to do all these fun, wonderful things with them. And we go along, and it brings happiness. I don't want to tell too many of those stories. Yeah. <laughs> Was there a certain time in your life where you just kind of threw everything to the wind and said, I'm going to do whatever I want and <laughs> forget, forget it. You know, if I can get away with it, I'm going to do it. Yeah. And look at what you did then. Yeah. 
we, we could tell some really good stories. Yeah. <laughs> really good stories or really bad stories, <laughs> I'm not sure. Okay, but by uh, if I behave the same way as them, I shall certainly proceed to lower realms because I just created tons of negative karma. And then, you know, what kind of results are those is that going to bring? Okay. And if I am led there by those unequal to the Aryas, what is the use of my entrusting myself to the childish? So if I am led to the lower realms by creating so much non-virtue by hanging out with childish beings, yeah, uh, I'm going to wind up in the lower realms. So what is the use what is the long-term use of hanging out with these people and making my life revolve around them? Yeah. And uh, I can't tell you the, the number of people who talk about, for example, uh, just even taking the five precepts, but, oh, I can't take this one or that one because it if I... Don't do this or that. It will disturb the family. Yeah. So they don't take some of the precepts. You had a, gave a talk yesterday about the fifth precept. Yeah. And that's the usual reason for not taking the fifth precept is, well, but if I stop drinking and drugging, everybody will think that because I'm a Buddhist, I've now become very puritanical, and they won't like Buddhism. So in order to give them a good impression of Buddhism, so they don't think Buddhism is extreme, then I'll go out drinking and drugging with them like I used to. And then, as we're together drinking and drugging, having a good time, I will talk to them about the Dharma and the disadvantages of attachment. Right. Yeah, I'll teach them the Dharma. So you start out as the 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 chai shop guru in India, and then you come home, and now you're the, you know, whatever it is, guru of all your friends, you know. Drinking, rugging, and, uh, you know, turning them all into Buddhists. Right. Um, okay. But what effect is this having on our mind? Yeah. We say, oh, but it's skillful means. Yeah. The Buddha talked about skillful means. Don't you remember the story of the captain of the ship who, you know, there was one person on the ship uh, who was going to kill the 500 merchants. So the Buddha, who was still a bodhisattva, out of compassion, he killed that person uh, to save the lives of the other 500. So that was skillful means on the, the behalf of the Buddha. No, when he was a bodhisattva, you remember that story. So... You know, here I am with my same, same friends. 
employing skillful means, drinking and drugging, going out carousing all night, uh, you know, doing, I won't even tell you what, uh, uh, but it's skillful means to bring them into the Dharma. Right? Yeah. And what kind of rebirth is that going to result in? Okay. So we completely take the idea of skillful means and use it as a justification for our negativity. It's not skillful. (laughs) Okay, verse 10. Oh, this one I love. One moment they are friends, and in the next instant they become enemies. Since they become angry, even in joyful situations, it is difficult to please ordinary beings. Okay, so he's getting tough with us here. And he's saying, let's look more accurately at the people you're attached to, you know. And what's going on here with your attachment? One moment, they're friends, right? They're friends. We have a good time with them. We confide in them. They confide in us. We go out and, you know, go bowling or golfing or play touch football or, you know, shoot hoops or do something together. And we have such a good time. One moment they're friends. And in the next instant, they become enemies. The moment we do something they don't like, the moment we disagree with their ideas. They get mad at us. Yeah? Think of your family. Is your family always happy with you? Yeah. You're with them and you delight with them and one moment they're your friends and then and then what happens? Are they, yeah? You say something don't like, you, they don't like. Yeah. Oh, especially a political view. Yeah. You say one political view. You say something that doesn't sound like it, it agrees 100% with their view. And instantly you are now an enemy. Okay. How can you think of that like that? You're a jerk. You're following those people. You're as bad as them. Hmm? And it's just over political views. Or they want to do some kind of business deal that isn't totally on the up and up. And they're being so kind, and they want to bring you into doing this business deal with them, because that way you too will make money. And so they're really wanting to help you be more successful, and so they offer you a place with this business deal, which isn't on the up and up, but it'll be okay. Everything will work out. And the moment you say, no, I don't want to do that, What? You don't trust me? I'm trying to help you be financially successful, and you're being some kind of prude who just thinks they're better than everybody else. Hmm? 
Okay. Anybody have any stories they want to tell, personal experience? Yes. Yeah, I want you to tell the story. Yeah. Because this is how we see the truth of the Dharma, when we see it in our own lives and can make examples from our own lives. Then it, it, we see it and it goes in the heart. So tell your story. Sorry, a story about? About when you did, when somebody you were very good friends with, who you loved, then turned into an enemy and got mad at you. Oh. I thought you raised your hand when yes, I said, I did. yeah. Yes, I did. Um, like when I started cutting my hair like this, I go to family meetings and my mother all the time just can't see it. She, for, I mean, for her is like, and I say, but look at the inside. And she says, oh no, that's the proof that you are not good for this family. You're becoming like, you know, like, it's like uh, she doesn't see it as a quality taking off the vanity. Mm-hmm. But she sees that uh, as a bad thing because it's not good for worldly success. See. Yeah. Good example. Um, my example is um, I was talking to my cousin one day and I was telling her that I was thinking about... Um, donating for, I don't know what you call it, but it's like kind of like a placard in a monastery where they do prayers for people who have passed away Mm. kind of daily. I wanted to do that for my mother. And she just, I I don't know, she just stopped in the middle of conversation, was just silent. She said, you know what? I really don't want to hear about this. Let's change the mic closer. Oh, sorry. She said, I really don't want to hear about this. I I don't know what you're into. Let's, Let's talk about something else. She just totally freaked out just over something that simple. So that, that's been my experience with that. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. So my relatives were angry with me because I did go back when my mom had a stroke and my grandma passed away. And then they were blaming me um, very badly. After that, they added, do you know that my home has this, 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 this problem? Yeah. So when they have no problem, um, it's very joyful situation. When they have problem, it becomes your fault. <laughs> um, for my example is, uh, have a tenants that actually uh, rented my place and then been treating them nicely. And then when situation change, everybody can become a stranger. So, and then I realized that, oh, the definition of me labeling them as friends, as enemy, is all because of my perceptions, conceptualization. Yeah. As uh, it works both ways. And I say this attachment coming out because I attach them as a friends, because I expect them to be, you're supposed to be good to me. And then they're not good to you. And when they're not good to you, they accuse it of being your fault. Yeah. He has that look too. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) The escape artist. (laughs) Okay, tell your story. Um, Yeah, so um, it's impermanent. 
So sometimes enemies become strangers, and then sometimes strangers become enemies. Yes, we know that. Mm. <laughs> and your story. <laughs> we can hold tightly to this idea of a permanent, fixed idea of what people should and shouldn't be. And when they don't live up to that, it's so painful. Yes. Yeah. Like, um, maybe uh, if you had a friend who let you down and you didn't expect that to happen, that'd be so painful for you. Yeah. Okay. So we all know one moment they are friends and in the next instant they become enemies. And they uh, become angry even in joyful situations. Yeah, like big family gatherings. Yeah, the story you told about the teenage boys, you know, and then their parents getting quite upset. <laughs> that was a good one. Yeah. So, you know, even big family, you know, there's a wedding, there's a uh, Thanksgiving dinner, there's who knows what. And, and they'll get angry about one thing or another. It is difficult to please ordinary beings. And that's really true. Now, this is painful to hear, okay? Because one side of us loves these people. And we don't like hearing that one moment they're friends and in the next moment they become enemies. Yeah, we, or we say, yes, that's very true. But in the corner, still, they're my special people who I can always turn to, who will always be there to support me, who are my refuge in samsara. Yeah. We often take refuge in other people who are as impermanent and transient as we are. Yeah. Lama Yeshi, when he was teaching us about refuge, he said, oh, you people think taking refuge is something new. It's not. You take refuge all the time. You take refuge in chocolate. You know, he always used chocolate as an example. But, you know, you take refuge in people. When we're upset, when we're depressed, when we need something, do we turn to Buddha Dharma Sangha? Do we think of of how to work with our own mind? No, we take refuge in other people. Yeah, who support us, encourage us, tell us we're okay, give us presence, do things for us. Yeah, the whole world is like this. It's nothing unique. But what we have to do is recognize this for the first time because we are so uh, accustomed to the way the world does things that it's hard for us to look at it and say, actually, the way the world sees things and the way the Buddha saw, saw many things are very different. Yeah, And this is why we talk about practitioners being white crows and swimming upstream because we're doing the opposite of worldly existence. And uh, it's hard, because one part of our mind is like, but, 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 
but you know, there's I can still get something out of samsara. Yeah. And if I renounce, then I am all alone because they think that they're renouncing happiness. Yeah. Renunciation of samsara means you re- we're renouncing misery. But people think, oh no, I have to give up the things I'm attached to. Oh, I'm renouncing happiness. I have to go stay in that cold cave and eat nettles all the time. Yeah. Samsara isn't so bad. So um, it's, it's hard to really confront. But when we do, you know, that's when the freedom comes inside. Because then the world doesn't control us so much. What's going on politically right now is a very good example. You know, with the... Uh, okay, I talk a lot about Trump. Okay, I'm doing this not as a political thing, but because it illustrates the Dharma point so exactly. Okay, so people who at the beginning when Trump was running for president in 2016 denounced him and criticized him, and he criticized them back, and there was this whole lot of, you know, people saying horrible things, uh, you know, to each other within the Republican Party. And then after he became president, all these people, you know, suddenly loved him. Yeah. And after January uh, 6th, what is coming out in the hearings is that most of these people were quite clear that he had lost the election. In their minds, they knew he had lost. And they often, but when they were with, and they would talk amongst each other saying this. But when they were with him, they would always say, oh, but there's some way that the election was fraudulent. We can find how they how they snuck in extra votes for Biden. We can do this. We can change that. And coming up with all these schemes, you know, to change electors, to uh, find all the fraudulent votes, to convince Pence that he had power to stop certification of the election when he had no such power, They were so beholden to him. They had taken refuge in him, basically, as he was the key to their samsaric success. If they supported him, they would get reelected. If they turned against him, even though amongst themselves they talked about how he was responsible for January 6th. But they knew if they, if they did that publicly, he would criticize them. And if Trump criticizes you, you are toast. Yeah. So suddenly their ethical concern, their ethics were just completely gone. Yeah. 
and they were willing to lie and cover up and go along with things, yeah, to to get his praise. So we do the same thing when we're attached to somebody or when we're attached to a certain kind of success. Maybe we don't want to be reelected. We don't want our parking space in the Capitol garage, you know, but we're attached to something else that other people can give us. And so we relinquish our beliefs, you know, and our ethics to follow along and get the samsaric thing we want that we think these people can deliver to us. And that's a really sorrowful sight. And I think what that brings is, at the time of death, a lot of regret. And to me, when I think of dying with regret, that's the physical pain of dying is one thing, but the mental pain of dying with regret must be excruciating beyond anything, any physical pain. Yeah. And yet we, we go along with that, you know? So it's, it's something to be really careful of. Yeah. And, And it's one thing to look at those politicians and say, oh, look at them, you know, they just, they're so worldly, and, you know, they're a friend, or one moment they're friends, and the next moment they become enemies, and they just are using each other. But to realize, oh, oh, I do that too when I'm attached to something. Yeah. And to really learn to be quite honest with ourselves about it. And then we don't want to say it out loud, like some people we know. Yeah, tight-lipped. Yeah, look down, look down. That's it, you got it. Yeah, he takes refuge in his computer. Whenever there's something, I say something he doesn't like. Oh, yeah, your face is kind of the color of robes now. (laughs) So, So it's difficult to admit it, but, you know, we're all alike. So why are we afraid to admit things where everybody else has the same stuff? You know, I don't want to tell my awful thing. Well, your awful thing is different than somebody else's awful thing. But they're both awful things that we wish we hadn't done, you know? So why not just, there it is, instead of... (laughs) Okay. They are angry when something of benefit is said, and they also turn me away from what is beneficial. If I do not listen to what they say, they become angry and hence proceed to lower realms. Okay. 
So do you see here how we're, before we looked at sentient beings as kind and valuable and we should cherish them, here we're looking at them in the context of we want to develop deep concentration so that we can realize emptiness and bodhicitta and so on. And our attachment to these sentient beings is a big obstacle. Okay? So we're seeing sentient beings in a different way, in a different context. Yeah? So in one context, they are kind and valuable and to be cherished. In the next context, other context, they are fickle, unreliable, and, you know, to be, to disassociate ourselves from them. Okay? And both things are true within their own context. Okay, I love this. They are angry when something of benefit is said. So you try to say something beneficial to your friend. Yeah? Like, oh, you're, you're um, really drinking a lot these days. Yeah, you just I just want to make an observe, observation, not criticize. Just you're drinking a lot. Who are you to contemplate, comment on my, how much I'm drinking? You know. Yeah, people just make innocent comments. We get furious. Yeah, I think I've told you about how when I talk about identities in public talks. Oh, people get so upset with me. So upset. This one talk I gave at Harvard, you know, it it was before I learned about wokeness, you know. And as a Buddhist, you know, we've been training our minds for a long time to see all sentient beings as equal and wanting happiness and not suffering. And that's how we're training our minds to see everybody. Okay, no matter what they look like, to not look superficially at people, but to look deeply in their hearts and see how everybody's the same. So I'm giving this kind of talk, and they're mostly students. There are some other outside people, too. And they start, you know. But my friend goes to Buddhist uh, temples and he doesn't see anybody in the Buddhist temple that looks like him. And then, and this was, uh, there was a man who was Asian there. And he said, I go to the temple. I don't see anybody who looks like me. I'm going, but wait a minute. Most of the temples have Asian people. And then somebody else told me what I should have said to him is the Buddha looks like you. Why are you complaining? Nobody looks like you. <laughs> the Buddha looks like you. The Buddha was Asian. But people get so, you know. But then you look at the Buddha. I mean, does the Buddha look Indian to you? Does he look Chinese? Does he look black? Does he look white? Does he look Mexican? You know, I don't. He, The statues are st- stylized statues. They don't really, to me, you know, they don't look like any particular thing. I don't, well, that Buddha's made out of white um, alabaster, is it? Jade. Jade, yeah. Oh, terrible. The Buddha's white. Yeah, he thinks he's superior 
That means all the people in the Dharma Center think they're superior because they're white like the Buddha. And then when we go in the meditation hall, that Buddha's brass. Oh, then all people who are brass, they think they're superior than everybody else because they're brass. Okay. You know, we are, are, um, you know, I mean, I went through this enough with the whole gender thing. Yeah. The whole refuge field is male, you know. And then you try making the whole refuge field into female. It seems different. It's like, oh, then there's somebody who looks like me. Yeah. And then you go, so what? Everybody looks, everybody, every human being looks like me. We are all human beings, you know. Some of the Buddhas don't even look like human beings. Yeah. Yeah, they don't look like human beings. I, uh, you don't look like me, you know, how could you be a Buddha? How we get so tangled up in these kinds of things. You know, then you want to go, Buddha, are you gay? You know, if you're not gay, then you're not going to understand me. You know, you've got to come out so that, you know, half of the people in the center can understand that, that you understand us, you know. It's like, it goes on and on. I want the Buddha to look like me instead of, whereas in Tantra, what do we do? We dissolve ourselves into emptiness and we reappear looking like the Buddha, looking like the deities. But we want them to look like us. (laughs) Yeah, so your Buddha's going to have braces. Okay. (laughs) My Buddha's going to have a scar here. <laughs> yeah, your Buddha's going to have glasses. Um, okay, so we we get, you know, yeah, my Buddha will also have hearing aids. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So it's like, you know, we get so attached to things and then people get upset we get upset with people and other people get attached to those things and they get upset with us when we don't agree okay and there's no end to it you know we can get upset over anything our little heart desires to get upset over you know when you think about it yeah it's it's very interesting you know Think about how many things within one day you get upset about. Not, it doesn't have to be raging upset, but things that you don't like. Yeah. The noodles are too spicy. The noodles aren't spicy enough. Yeah. They serve beans. They didn't serve beans. Yeah, there's dirt on the floor. Hallelujah, there is always dirt on the floor. (laughs) Isn't there? When is the floor ever without dirt on it? Yeah, but I get upset by the, you know, I don't like there to be dirt on the floor. You know, you look around like, oh, look. 
there's that black tape that's been on the carpet for I don't know how many months. Why do they have black tape on the carpet? Why don't they take it off? Well, yes, I know they used to use it to put position the paper but the tables when we listen to Geshe Topke teach on the computer. But we're not doing that now. Why don't we get rid of the tape? It irritates me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look at everything you get irritated about during one day. Yeah. Everybody who you want to correct, who didn't do something right, And it's over teeny tiny things, let alone the big things. And so other people are just like this too. And this is how we spend our precious human life. So they are angry when something of benefit is said. And they also turn me away from what is beneficial. Why are you going to retreat? Come on, retreat. You're just wasting your time looking at your belly button, saying that you're meditating. Yeah, let's go to the beach instead. Okay. If I do not listen to what they say, oh, you mean I'm a teenager forever? <laughs> I don't listen to whatever the people say. Yeah, other yeah, other people are always telling us what to say. Yeah. I'm not gonna listen to what you say. Why not? Because you said it. Perfectly legitimate. Yeah. If I don't listen to what they say, they become angry, and then their anger makes them get reborn in the lower realms. So you kind of look at all this, and then at a certain point you go, huh, what's the use of, of it? Yeah. And this is why in Dharma practice, they really encourage us to have, uh, to be very careful about who we become close to and who our friends are. Because, um, what, oh, what did my mother used to say? Birds of a feather flock together. Yeah? And and it's true. And we become like the people we hang out with. So to be very careful about that. Verse 12, they are envious of superiors, competitive with equals, arrogant towards inferiors, conceited when praised. And if anything unpleasant is said, they look at their computers and become angry. Never is any benefit derived from the childish. So it's true, you know. They're envious of people who are superior, competitive with equals, arrogant towards inferiors, conceited when praised. And if we say anything we don't like, they become angry. You know what? This also sounds like me. Yeah. So here it's being said in the context of how we take refuge in childish beings and to 
tell us to be careful about that. Okay. But if you flip it, it's also asking us, what kind of friend are we to other people? Yeah. Do we take care and try to become a good friend to other people who, you know, who don't get envious of superiors, competitive with equals, arrogant towards inferiors, and on and on, you know? Okay? So it's two things. We're, we're seeing, okay, other people have this, the warning, don't take refuge in them. Yeah. But then we have to look and say, mm, well, uh, I have these qualities too. So if I want to be a good friend to other people, if I want to be somebody who can be a Dharma friend who other people can rely on for, uh, to, to give me good advice and give me good counsel when I need it, then I have to get rid of these kind of qualities within myself. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because we will think of qualities we like in other people, but how much do we think of what, how we can become a good friend to somebody? What qualities do I need to develop in myself to be somebody else's Dharma friend? Okay. So never is any benefit derived from the childish. Thirteen, through associating with the childish, there will certainly uh, ensue unwholesomeness, such as praising myself, belittling others, and discussing the joys of cyclic existence. Okay, so when we hang out with childish living beings, which means just people who, uh, uh, you know, have the regular, common, worldly outlook, uh, that the happiness of this life is the most important thing, and we should get that happiness as much as we can, no matter what. Okay? Through associating with them, there will certainly ensue unwholesomeness. Yeah? Why? Because I will become like them. I will adopt their values. I want to belong That's what all these people who are kowtowing to Trump, you know, what's going on. I want to belong. I want his praise. So I will do whatever is necessary to get it and all the benefits that I reap from his, you know, being a tag along to his power. And then you say, you know, I do that in my own in my own form, yeah. I, I try and, yeah, do that whole trip to get some status for myself. In, you know, I don't want to be president. You know, I don't want to be a senator. But in my own way, whatever I want, if I can get some status from being with other people or hanging out with them or going along with their ideas, mm, yeah, that's good. Okay, so there will certainly ensue unwholesomeness. What kind of unwholesomeness? Praising myself. Yeah, 
when we're with people who are childish, who we want to impress because they have power or status or money or good looks or they're a good artist, they're a good musician, they're whatever it is, you know, that we idolize or what we think is fantastic, then I will praise myself to look good in their eyes. Yeah? And this is especially in this country we're taught to praise ourselves. In Asia, not so much. Yeah, you're taught to to really be humble. But in America, yeah, you go in for a job interview, yeah, you apply to a, a college, you apply for anything, you've got to praise yourself. You know, so I have this quality, and then you bump it up a little bit. Yeah. We make ourselves look better than we are. And we don't talk about our faults. So, such as praising myself, belittling others. Yeah, those two go together. I put other people down so that then in comparison, I look wonderful. Yeah. Geshe Nawandargi used to say that to us. Oh, you sit around with your friends and you gossip about this person does this and the person does that. And they, oh, it's just so awful. And, that's, and the conclusion of your whole conversation is the two of us are the best ones in the world. Yeah? So belitt- praising ourselves, belittling others. Yeah. Those are the, you know, that comes in the bodhisattva vows, the, the first Root bodhisattva vow, actually. Yeah, praising oneself, belittling others. And it's especially lethal if you do that as a Dharma practitioner. You know, put yourself up as somebody you're not and belittle other people to make yourself look good. Okay. And what else do we do with, with the childish? We discuss the joys of cyclic existence. So there was a time in the history of the Abbey that some of you will remember when we had a number of young men come to uh, stay at the Abbey and help out and work in the forest and do things. And they stayed down in the, um, in the barn, in the community room. Okay. So that was kind of where the guys stayed. And they were all like early 20s, you know, early mid-20s. And sometimes we ask them, you know, what went on in that room? <laughs> what did they talk about? Because they were like really chummy. And I was like, oh, well, we talk about, guess what? The three big ones. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. <laughs> Okay, except not rock and roll, rapping or whatever the latest thing is. Okay, and uh, with drugs, the you know the I think in those days it was probably meth, meth and and mar- well marijuana is all the ages, you know, but meth meth was a big one then. What else? And ecstasy. You know, now they talk about ayahuasca, um, but you know, yeah. What? What? Ayahuasca <laughs> is not a drug. It's a holy. Substance. Oh, ayahuasca is not a drug. It's a it's a holy substance. Yeah. 
I'm sure for people in that culture, it's something. For people who are seeking extravagant experiences, yeah, because what the Buddha said isn't good enough. Now some people are going to get mad at me. I said that. Yeah, oh, oh, there's a whole bunch of people who are going to be furious with me. I'm going to get letters. Have you tried ayahuasca? What are you doing? You know, saying something like that when you haven't tried it. Why are you criticizing? You get a near-death experience. It really enhances your your appreciation for what the Buddha taught. You know, how dare you criticize? You're so puritanical. Yeah, I'll get criticized for sure. At this talk, I think a lot of people are going to criticize. Yeah. Oh, you talked about Trump. You know? Oh, that's terrible. You're so influenced in, in politics. You know? And I forgot to talk about how, how Cruz, you know, went on vacation to Cancun when his constituents were out of electricity and in floods, you know. Oh, now you said it. Now you're criticizing him. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, I, yeah. We're going to get a lot of tomatoes here. <laughs> They'll send boxes of tomatoes. <laughs> here, throw these at your teacher. <laughs> what she's saying is nonsense. Okay, and discussing the joys of cyclic existence. Okay, so uh, I'm, I'm sure, uh, you know, what else do we discuss? Fashion. Yeah, what are the latest fashions? What do you need to wear to look cool? Yeah. yeah. Maroon is never the cool color. Yeah. I'm waiting for the day when they show this on the color of cover of Vogue, you know. But Kim Kardashian or some one of those famous kind of people shaved their heads. Or somebody at the Academy Awards, his wife shaved their head and somebody else criticized it. And he went up and whammed the guy in the middle of the Academy Awards. (laughs) Okay. Nobody ever... Wham somebody because I shaved my head. <laughs> oh, poor me. Yeah. What? It's the disease that Representative Alyssa Presley has where they lose their hair. And so it was actually medical treatment that somebody got, I think, a little snarky about it, and that's what happened. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, devoting myself to others. Ooh, it's 11.30. We better stop. So we will come back to verse 14 next time. I'll just read it to get give you a flavor. Devoting myself to others in this way will bring about nothing but misfortune because they will not benefit me and I shall not benefit them. Okay. Maybe one or two questions. Yeah. So I just want to know when you were talking about um, 
people complaining that uh, people in the monastery didn't look like them or that they weren't, you know, gay or queer. Is that an example of them uh, like being attached to an identity? It, 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 that's what it sounds like, just an, an attachment yeah. to identity. Is that what that is? Yeah. Yeah. It's attachment to our identity. Okay. Very much. Yeah. And also, too, about the getting mad at everything. I've actually gotten mad at inanimate objects. Like, I got mad at my door for not unlocking when I was turning the key the wrong direction. But I was, <laughs> I was angry with my door for, I swear, a full-fledged day. <laughs> yeah. Good examples. When we were doing the uh, eight precepts yesterday, we were reading from the Blue Book. And it mentioned how the three gems are our be- the three jewels are our best friends. Mm-hmm. Could you speak a little bit about that in some capacity? Well, there are objects of refuge. Why? Because they're reliable. Yeah, they lead us on the path to liberation. They don't lead us on the path to lower realms. Yeah, they tell the truth. They give us the teachings and direct us, uh, you know, to create virtue and on the path. Yeah, so they're good friends. Venerable, does these teachings apply when your parents get old and they expect you to be with them even if they don't need you? What do you think? I don't think so. You don't think the teaching applies? Oh, no, I think it it applies. It applies, yeah. It does. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it's it's difficult even with parents who do need you, you know. It's even more difficult if they do need you, um, you know, to to really think about what is beneficial and what isn't in your own life. You know? And, yeah, there, there's a lot in there. How do we relate to the family? And uh, there's a lot of pull with attachment to serve the family. Okay? And so we have to really think long-term. Long-term. What what is the biggest benefit in the long-term? And also not to see it in black and white terms. It isn't, oh, either I give everything up and I'm with the family, or I give the family up and I just do dharma. And we, we tend to, to, um, to put difficult situations into very black and white terms. Yeah. When there's often so many shades of gray and there's so many alternatives that you can do. So it's not just either this or that. Yeah, there's often many other things you can do to deal with the situation in a good way. But, you know, there's a line in here where he said, um, you can never please childish beings. That is so true. I mean, we are never pleased, and other people are never pleased either. And you can do 10 backflips and a somersault. And, you know, they're not going to be happy with you. Whatever you do, they're not going to be perfectly happy with you. Yeah? And somebody's always going to criticize. So, yeah, just get used to it. That's the tragic anguish of the people pleasers. 
Yes. Constantly looking for that approval. It's never, ever, ever, ever going to come. Yeah. Well, it comes. But, well, it's a moment. It's just a moment. Yes, it's not it's a lasting a thing. It's yeah. not lasting. And you need another fix real soon. Yeah. Like in five minutes. Yeah, at the most. Yeah, the next moment is even better. So is attachment and addiction, is every, were we just really addicted to everything? Is that what samsara is? Uh, it looking like that, doesn't it? Uh, yeah. Attachment just, yeah, becomes, we become at different levels of addiction to the different things that we're attached to, that we think have happiness inside them. The happiness is inside that person, inside that object, inside that situation. So I need that external thing to get the happiness. Okay, let's dedicate. <laughs>